This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Welcome to another Joy 94.9 podcast. Transmission time. Following the spin's always a challenge. Thanks, boys, for leaving all the microphones turned down and everything else. Transmission time. Jane and Lauren. On a, I won't say a balmy Tuesday night because it's it's been pouring with rain out there. It's still not cold yet, though, so that's probably a good mm, thing. The um, the road's very slippery. I found coming in, uh, took off a couple of times, and the car did wheelies at the back. Oh, that's just the way you drive. <laughs> no, think, it's Jane. not. I'm usually very careful the way I drive. On the show tonight, we have Dr. Finton Hart, who is the director of the Monash Gender Dysphoria Centre. And he'll be joining us in a few moments to answer... Lots of questions. He's he's, he's kind of king of the world now when it comes to uh, gender and, well, transgender issues now in Victoria. The retirement of of pretty much the, the old guard. So anyone out there has any questions for Dr. Hart, or should we call him Finton? We'll ask him in a moment. 0427 JOY 949 is the SMS number. On air at joy.org.au is the email. Or you could call them through to um, to our man on the desk out there on 1300 JOY 949. Mm. So that's the key. Dr. Mm. Hart's coming up. We're not going to fluff around a whole lot more. And hopefully all these buttons are going to press. Sorry? Uh, well, I was just going to say that um, I'd like to welcome our interstate listeners. I know there's quite a few people in New South Wales listening tonight. How could tonight. you know that? <laughs> oh, I have my why, contacts. Why would you know that? How could you know that? And who cares anyway? But yes, a big hi to anyone who's listening on the, the internet. Let's. And you just log on to joy.org.au to listen to that. Correct. But I suppose if you're listening to us on the radio, why would you bother with all that mm, stuff? An email like from a, a person up in uh, New South Wales said that the aerial wasn't quite big enough to pick up Joy. So she's listening on the internet. Well, as the engineer here, Jane, that's your job to fix that. Life from a transgender perspective. And we'll be talking to Dr. Finton Hart in just a few moments. Transmission time with Jane and Lauren. You're listening to Transmission Time on Joy 94.9. Tonight we have a very special guest, uh, Dr. Finden Hart. Dr. Hart is a consulting psychiatrist and is the director of the Monash Medical Centre's Gender Dysphoria Clinic here in Melbourne. Uh, the Monash uh, Gender Clinic has been in existence for well over a quarter of a century and it is the only establishment of its kind in Australia. Dr. Hart is also Vice President of ANSPATH, and we'll ask him what that is in a minute. And Dr. Hart has agreed to answer any of the questions from you, our listeners. If you have any questions, uh, questions just email us uh, on air at joy.org.au or, of course, SMS 0427-JOY949. Welcome, Dr. Hart. Thank you very much for having me back. It's <laughs> lovely to be back on transmission. Uh, are we allowed, I know you spent more time in this studio than perhaps Jane or I. Are we allowed <laughs> to call you Finton? Of course you are. Because we've already had a question saying for Dr. Hart, so we'll, we'll bring that up in a second. But... Yes, it's the the formality is always difficult, and and there was a doctor on television. Wasn't it heart to heart, or were they private investigators or something? I think so. Either way, you get you you become known as a heart surgeon. So anyway, sorry, Jane. <laughs> okay, the first question is, what is ANSPATH? Well, ANSPATH is a newly formed organisation which was formed in Oslo 
uh, last June uh, during the World Professional Association Transgender Conference, Health Conference. And it stands for the Australian and New Zealand Professional Association for Transgender Health. But it was formed overseas. But it was formed <laughs> in Oslo, yes, by a group of uh, 10 Australians who were present at the, uh, at the international uh, conference, which was uh, a great uh, representation from Australia, mm. given that uh, in, in Bologna five years ago there were only two of us. So um, it's, uh, it, it was very pleasing to, to okay. see that. Number there. So, uh, so, so what do you try to achieve with it? Setting up this is again, it's it, it's well. There will be there's several aims to the organisation. One is to provide support for professionals working in the area of transgender health around the country. Yeah. Uh, certainly, there's uh, there's a number of us in Sydney and Melbourne that enjoy peer support, but there there are other. Uh, professionals in Brisbane and Perth that are quite isolated. So professional support is one. Uh, certainly looking at Australian standards of care is another. Okay. Uh, education for people who want to work in the area. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a whole variety of... Uh, the mission statement is fairly broad. Wonderful. Well, I think we've. this has been coming... a long time coming, hasn't it? So... Yes, yes. It's, 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 it's not so much been a long time. It's, it's just a wonderfully overdue initiative. Mm. Mm. Oh, that's fast, fabulous. Mm. Sorry, Jane. <laughs> I'll That's just jump in whenever I can. Like you always do. Yes, you do. Go on. <laughs> um, I suppose, since you're here to talk about the clinic, can you give us a, a little sort of brief history of the clinic? Like, well, let's start at the beginning. When did it start? Well, the origins of the clinic date back to the 1970s. In fact, 1976, I think, was the original date when uh, Professor Carl Woods and uh, Associate Professor William Walters uh, organised the first surgeries at the Queen Victoria Hospital. And they were... Uh, quite uncommon in those days. The, the first uh, one or two surgeries were performed in secret on a Sunday morning when not many people were around so that nobody could complain. And the team celebrated with a sausage sizzle on the roof of the hospital oh, afterwards. No. The Freudian significance of which was totally wasted on the surgeons, I have to add. But uh, yeah, so that, that was the start of it. And then uh, by the mid-1980s, 1987, it moved to Southern Health, to Monash, and with Trudy as the director and Herbert, the late Herbert Barr of course and it's remained at Southern Health since it's under the auspices of mm. Southern Health. So what was the um, motivation for, uh, for starting the clinic? Oh there were certainly one or two um, people that that were experiencing intense gender dysphoria and, and very anxious for uh, for treatment and and the um, psychiatrists and and uh, other medical practitioners looking after them at the time felt that this was a very justifiable uh, treatment and a necessary treatment mm. at a time when it was extremely controversial in the mm. 1970s. So, uh, for, for people who were suffering from, from gender dysphoria at the time, before the clinic got going, what sort of, sort of treatment or, or services or, or where did they go? Well, there were very limited services, as far as I'm aware, and, and they would have been confined to friendly, understanding practitioners here and there, but there was no formal clinic as such or, or, or recognised um, treatment protocols for people. Right, OK. I know that you're the, the director of the Gender Dysphoria Clinic, but um, what's actually your role within the clinic? Uh, well... There's many facets to my role. It's, it's clearly to, to direct the clinic in, in terms of its, its mission statement and, and ensuring that there's high-quality uh, health services for transgender people coming to the clinic. Mm -hmm. It certainly involves things like, uh, I mean, apart from face-to-face -face contact with patients, it, it's about supervision of, of other staff. It's uh, driving research within the clinic. It's uh, being a, a media voice, uh, an advocate for <laughs> patients, being involved in education. Do so you still it's, it's hands-on, so to speak? Do you still have... Uh, Oh, very much so, yes, I think with, that's, yes. With psychopaths, sorry, Jane, and, and other uh, 
trans people. <laughs> Your keep. <laughs> yes, very much so. The, the, the job is very much hands-on and okay. clinical, yes. Mm. Who actually sort of makes up the clinic? Like, uh, what sort of people do you, do you have there? Well, there are two psychiatrists, and there's a clinical psychologist who's the, the manager of the clinic, and another clinical psychologist who does face-to-face clinical work and clinical assessments. Can I ask, I know it's, it's probably an offensive question to someone who's qualified as a psychiatrist but what's is there a difference is there a you often hear clinical psychologists and I don't really know what they do I understand a psychiatrist but can you describe what a psychologist for us without offending psychologists uh, yeah well psychiatrists of course are initially medical practitioners who yeah. specialize in psychiatry as a subspecialty of medicine and you can prescribe Yes, um, medications. Medications, and, yeah. yeah. Psychologists then uh, study psychology, which is generally a four-year course, and then decide to do a whole range of subspecialties. So it can be educational psychology, occupational psychology, or, as you mentioned, clinical psychology, which is generally a master's, two years master's degree in, in clinical work. So. And, and what can they do for, for myself or Jane? What, how do they help? Do they help us deal with our issues while the psychiatrists prescribe with a treatment is that how it works not not really no there is overlap in in our roles i mean both of us would uh, do psychotherapy with patients would mm-hmm. both would do um, psychological psychiatric slash psychiatric assessments yeah. uh, so um, but but as you say psychiatrists can prescribe and are qualified medical practitioners and therefore entitled to do are entitled to the privileges of, of being a registered medical practitioner where psychologists uh, can't can't do those things oh, okay but you can do you perform oh, sorry jane i'm jumping in all <laughs> over the place here but does a psychologist perform counseling services absolutely yes oh, okay yes okay and, i wasn't and, sure uh, if that was yes our psychologists are very much involved with that okay sorry mm. jane okay. <laughs> one thing that must be so very important to any organization is funding is it uh, funded by the state government or how's yes it, it is and in fact when when you say we're the only uh, establishment of our kind in australia th- there is of course a gender clinic uh, a very uh, effective gender clinic in south australia uh, but mm. they're not state funded so our claim to fame is that we are the only state funded gender clinic in in the country mm. but our funds are very limited so the one in south australia is actually a privately run one is yes it? yes okay which would probably tend to make it a bit more expensive to go through well it, yes they don't have the resources that we do in terms of of um, support staff they don't have a clinical psychologist as we do they don't have the secretarial support mm. that we enjoy so it's much more difficult for them but uh, they do a very good job under difficult circumstances but but having said that there's been a history of underfunding of this service going back since I came out about 15 or 16 or 17 years ago. Mm. It's always been a case of the gender uh, or transgender treatment programs seem to have been horribly underfunded in the Absolutely. past. Absolutely, yes, that's, that's very true. And I think that uh, while we got a boost of funding under the, the last chief medical officer, who is now the chief psychiatrist, Dr. Vine, and she very kindly gave us a badly needed boost it's it's still relative to other mental health clinics uh, underfunded and i guess that's what people need to realize is that uh, the two psychiatrists working in the clinic are actually employed uh, just two half days a week and most of their work is done in their private practices and consequently it can take quite a long time to get a public appointment done at the clinic and that's a uh, difficulty we do need more more funding and we do need more staffing that's always been a, the problem yeah. in the past people mm-hmm. having to wait so long to try and get onto what was perceived as the program yeah 
but basically it's to try and get their first appointment to see either yourself or Dr. Kennedy or Dr. Bauer. Certainly in Dr. Bauer's day, it was so hard to get involved mm, that a lot yeah. of people just, just felt... And, of course, a lot of trans people are impatient, having mm. made the decision to move full-time. I want to see a psychiatrist now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yes. More like yesterday. Yeah, I, I didn't plan this. I didn't prepare myself for this. I just want someone now. And it just wasn't available. Well, I think the difficulties exist um, now for, for different reasons. In the past, it was because the clinicians involved were fairly senior and semi-retired and only working oh, yeah. part-time. While the current psychiatrists are working full-time, we're not working full-time in the area of transgender health. And there's a very good reason for that. I think it's terribly important that those of us working in the area keep our hand in, so to speak, in general psychiatry and continue to treat people with depression and uh, addictions and, and mm -hmm post-traumatic stress disorder, that we keep abreast of, of general psychiatry. I think there's a danger for mental health professionals working in this area because of the demand uh, for them to become, as it were, a one-trick pony. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those of us working in the area tend to try and keep it at 50% of our clinical work so that we maintain our skills in other areas. And I think that's important for people to remember as well. Just continuing to, to drag this away somewhere else, one of the things, or several of the things that you need to establish in regard to trans people is that they don't have any of these other conditions exactly. that are affecting their gender identification. That's right. And I think one of the, the benefits of having a psychiatric slash psychological evaluation prior to undergoing gender reassignment treatments is to ensure that people um, don't present with what we would call um, a, a differential diagnosis, that their gender dysphoria is not due to something else. Yeah. Now occasionally we will see people with a, a chronic psychotic illness such as schizophrenia who present with a delusion that they're of the other sex. It's not common, but it's not uncommon either, and it's well, very she's important. She's able to work in engineering <laughs> and on the radio at the same time, so it's, it's surprising you were able to come to that diagnosis. And she's, you know, she's okay, aren't you, Jane? I'm well, most of the time I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I guess that's I do have you, my moments. I guess I guess that's why you're trained, isn't it? Well, that's right, and that's yeah. I think one of the advantages of a, a general evaluation and and assessment and and going through the the process, as it were. Yes. In the past, there's been a little bit of a um, a perception, I suppose, that the Monash Clinic is sort of a, a little bit dogmatic in the way that it treats people, and there's and that you sort of uh, regard as gatekeepers. And that if you don't sort of basically follow the line, it's it's uh, almost impossible to uh, to get you know the approval at the end of the process if you want to have surgery. Do you feel that sort of sediment is sort of warranted these days? Well, I think there's obviously some truth to it. I think in the in the historically. There were very strict guidelines and the protocols were adhered to rather rigidly. I think the newer paradigm, and we'll see it, I think, in the new standards of care, which are due for publication next year at the World Professional Association's International Congress in, in Atlanta, Georgia, in September uh, 2011, we'll see more liberal uh, standards of care and less emphasis on boxes being ticked and, and okay. adhering to a very strict protocol. Certainly, I don't like to be seen as a gatekeeper and I say to people if you know if I am a gatekeeper it's it's to open the gate because that's what I do more often than not but it's I see myself accompanying people on a journey rather than than uh, standing at a gate mm. okay. it, it certainly has changed in in recent years I, I recall being around when you came into this and the very strict protocols that were in place mm. and certainly the the sentiment out there has seems to have changed in regard to 
how Monash is perceived. So I think it is, we are seeing change and it seems to be good. So once, if we never get the funding right, it could be wonderful. Yes, I remain hopeful that it will be wonderful and continue to improve. Yeah. I think it was about a year ago, the clinic sort of went through a, a bit of a bad time and there was uh, threats of uh, the clinic being closed. And so basically what enabled the, the clinic to keep going? Well, a lot of hard work, Jane, is, <laughs> is the simple answer. Well, um, like certainly, the, the, the closure was, was fuelled by concerns about uh, protocols, and uh, it came mainly from a medical-legal perspective that uh, uh, the robustness of the assessment process and the documentation was called into question. And I guess every cloud has a silver lining, and what it forced us to do, the closure, was to look at, at uh, protocols and procedures and, and to reevaluate those to address them and make sure that all the T's were crossed and the I's dotted and that things were up to standard. And I think in doing that it, ins- it, it ensured and has ensured uh, a better quality service for clients and that uh, people can be uh, assured that they're getting um, a state-of-the-art um, evaluation when they and assessment when they come to the clinic. Mm. But certainly hard work by the clinic staff, uh, my registrar, and the clinic manager and the psychologist ensure that the clinic was able to, to reopen in after a three-month uh, housekeeping stint, which I, I understand caused great, great stress for the community. And we didn't, we couldn't say, look, we guarantee that we're going to open, but we were very hopeful that we would, and fortunately we did. Mm. Many of our listeners are basically, uh, who, who are perhaps are considering transition would be sort of interested in the, pr- in the process you go through. And we actually got an email that says, um, Hi girls, I have a question for Dr. Hart. How long have you got to be a patient at the clinic before you're approved for SRS? So, so but basically, could you take us through a little bit about the... Is, is there a standard? Is there a... Well, there isn't in terms of how long you have to be a patient of the clinic. The, the clinic follows the international standards of care. And I guess the first thing to say about those standards of care is that they are flexible guidelines with the emphasis on both the flexible and the guidelines. They are not written in stone. Increasingly, I think with the new standards, we'll see a, a greater degree of flexibility in, in you know, the real-life experience and how long that has to be. Uh, again, the requirements for, for psychotherapy and those other requirements and eligibility and and readiness criteria to proceed to surgery. So clearly somebody who's been living full-time in a chosen gender for many years has undergone hormonal reassignment and is psychologically stable and presents to the clinic requesting surgery will not need to be a patient of the clinic for very long before being approved. But somebody who attends the clinic who is just questioning their gender identity and and is there to talk, well, that's going to be a longer process. Mm. So it's horses for courses and I think that this is a this is a key issue that I think the under my directorship, the, the, the clinic will see individualised management plans that um, it will not be one size fits all. Uh, treatment and, and the protocol will be designed for each person and I think that's an important change that we want to see. Well, I guess it's like any medical condition, isn't it? I mean, you just can't take two aspirins and call me in the morning for <laughs> a whole lot of other things. But I guess this being a, a mental condition, and it, it is still classified as a mental condition? Well, it's still classified as a mental disorder. Now, I know there's a lot of concern in the trans community about that and that disorder has a certain stigma attached to it. 
So there is a proposal in DSM-5 to change from gender identity disorder to gender incongruence. That will be the diagnostic label. So at least it removes disorder, at least it removes that stigma. And while I know some people would like to see it out of DSM-5 completely, um, that's, I don't think, going to happen this time round. But look, we saw homosexuality disappear out of the DSM, and many people believe that, that uh, transsexuality and gender identity disorder will go the same way. We reported um, a few months ago that, was it France decided... It, there was one country that decided it wasn't a mental uh, a mental um, condition. I got a feeling it was the French. It, it was either f- bless them. It was either French or Swedish. No, I think it was the French yeah, because fun. I was uh, amazed at, at both their arrogance, their wonderful arrogance <laughs> to say, "No, we don't think so anymore." So we're going to call it something else. I don't recall what they called it, but I know that they said it wasn't necessarily a medical condition mm. as far as they were concerned. I think for for people that carry the label. Uh, it's important that they're happy with what, what label they're given and it's, uh, it's important that they have a say in choosing the label. If you're a male to female trans person and see yourself as, uh, as not having a psychiatric condition and would prefer to see yourself as a female with a somatic condition yeah. um, and be able to access hormones and surgery without a psychiatric label, I think you're still going to be asked in this day and age to at least undergo a psychiatric evaluation um, so that I don't think the protocol will change even if you change the, the diagnosis or change mm. the label. It's an interesting thought, isn't it? It's, mm. it's, I just, it's, and, and, and when you consider all of the evaluations that trans people need to go through in order to, to, to live their lives the way that they believe they can, I just still find it bizarre that people in this day and age should be allowed to be parents without having a psychiatric mm. evaluation <laughs> it's just it's just our, our, jane you and I, our lives are so much more simple we we believe we are who we are mm, and yes. um and yet and you see some things out there on the street and think oh you know i i thought i had problems and you look at some parents and think oh you should you need a license for this anyway transmission time with jane and lauren we've just play some music to break up from your wonderful Irish accent. And we have a couple more questions for you from our listeners, and we'll follow through. You're listening to, to Lauren and Jane and Dr. Fintan Hart from the Monash Gender Dysphoria Centre um, on Joy 94.9. Different sounds for our same-sex community. Joy 94.9. Yes, you are listening. Oh, shut up, you. I'm backing out. Meet me halfway by the black-eyed peas. And Transmission yet- time. Jane and Lauren. Jane will speak now. Thank you. <laughs> you take the wind out of my sails again, haven't you? <laughs> um, transmission time. And I did that. Yes, with Jane and Lauren, and you did and that. that. <laughs> uh, but you didn't do And we are talking to Dr. Finden Hart, who is the director of the Monash Gender uh, Dysphoria Clinic. We're talking about uh, a little bit of history about the, uh, the clinic, its processes, and uh, we've got a little bit more on the processes. And then we might talk about the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual and what's going to happen in that. I suppose one th- uh, question that people would ask is why go through the uh, the Monash Clinic? I know that a number of people tend to bypass the, the clinic and uh, buy their hormones off the internet and things like that. Um, so uh, so what, what do you see as the advantage in going through the clinic? Well, I think there are a number of advantages. The first is that you get to explore your gender identity with uh, a professional who hopefully has uh, extensive experience in the area and has has accompanied a lot of other people on this journey. Um, 
and has uh, can hopefully can inform uh, in a positive way who you who you want to be and who you're going to become. I think there are benefits to a psychiatric and psychological evaluation and assessment in undergoing this process. I think that it's a very stressful journey for many people to take. Uh, we see a lot of people with depression, anxiety, uh, substance abuse problems. Uh, and they be more probably symptoms. Yeah. Oh yes, yes, developing in the context of severe gender dysphoria and that they need help with. So there's the, there's that advantage that you mm. get help with any other difficulties that Plus you may have. Self-medicating hormones is probably not the smartest way to to look after your liver. No, these are these are very dangerous drugs if not taken properly. And and we have had deaths with people taking too many estrogens and getting uh, deep venous thrombosis and and uh, resulting in death. So that certainly I would not be advocating that anybody. Uh, get these off the internet and, and self-medicate in a, the, the certainly best uh, you know prescribed in a controlled medical environment plus you don't really know what you're getting if you're getting That's a small right. pill it's mm. not absolutely clear what you is you're sticking in your mouth you've mm. probably got more of a chance of, of having some if a chemist hands it over there's a reasonable chance at least you've got someone to go back and sue if they <laughs> hand you over estrogen and it turns out to be testosterone <laughs> That's right. The other thing to remember with drugs uh, from the internet that you don't have, uh, in terms of uh, quality control, there is no guaranteed quality control when they're obtained from outside the country. Whereas within Australia, there are very strict controls over the quality of drugs and drug production, and uh, you don't get that when you when you order drugs on the internet. So that's an important point to remember. Okay. Uh, now we've looked so briefly at the advantages. Are there any disadvantages? Going to well, the clinic. Clearly, I don't see disadvantages. People would say there's disadvantages if we, you know, see that that somebody, for a variety of reasons, uh, may not be suitable to undertake gender transition. That we see that there are clearly psychiatric contraindications, and we advise them that we think there are other things that they need to address before undertaking transition. And people in that situation obviously can react with with anger and say. Uh, well, you know, I don't want anything to do with the clinic and, and go elsewhere. Mm. So there's a disadvantage from their perspective. <laughs> but I, I think overall, the vast majority of people going through the clinic are pleased with the uh, with the assessment mm. and, and the help they receive. I mean, I think there's a definite advantage. And the, and the scientific evidence is that going through a gender team and, and having the advantages of, of being assessed by psychologists and psychiatrists and, and social workers and, and endocrinologists and surgeons, uh, that there's a distinct advantage to that process. Mm. What a proportion of people who actually start in sort of de- down the process actually go on to have surgery? Um, 33%. Ooh. And that's consistent over the years. Since 1976, uh, there have been two studies done at Manash in that period. And um, it, while the numbers have doubled uh, over the years in, in those attending the clinic, the actual number proceeding to uh, to surgery, while that has increased, the percentage has stayed constant at 33%. So, so about about a third of patients going through actually proceed to surgery. So you're like at parking offices in the city, you've kind of got a quota and you, <laughs> you, you need to keep it up or keep it down. We no, try to keep it down now, and you know that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that so far over recent years that the number of people sort of presenting at the clinic has, has doubled. Uh, I found an article during the week from the UK that basically said that their rates since 2000 has actually tripled. The number of people being approved for surgery 
uh, in 2000 was not uh, was 54 and in 2009 143 so over there they've seen about a um a th- three times um Increase and and ours have only been um of a double. Is that is that? Well, they're English. <laughs> well, so are both so are both both the, are we. This is the country that brings you Little Britain and Benny Hill. It's true. Edu- true. It's probably education, though, isn't it? Vincent? People are becoming more aware of what's available and, and who they and are. Yeah. The internet's made a huge difference. Absolutely, and people are pursuing pursuing treatments that they know are available whereas mm. previously they, they thought they were very isolated, they were alone that there wasn't treatment available, that they were only person suffering this condition and uh, you're quite right, the mm. internet has made a huge difference. Mm. Also the, in the UK, surgery uh, can be funded under the National Health Scheme, mm-hmm. whereas not all of it is covered under Medicare so it can work out quite expensive for some people. That's right. So that might make up sort of uh, some of the difference. What would be the sort of the, the typical age of people going through? Is there so a very large spread, or is it older or younger people? Right? There is a very large spread. Uh, by and large, we we see two main groups. We see the younger group that present in their late teens or early twenties, and who've who've. Uh, experienced severe gender dysphoria from early childhood and been quite clear on what they wanted and uh, uh, generally they haven't uh, of the male to females haven't been married and uh, have less heterosexual experience and then there's that older group that we see the 30s plus 40s 50s and even into the 60s who have less intense gender dysphoria who've tried to suppress their transgender feelings across the lifespan have tried to normalize inverted commas their existence and get married and have children and 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 come to a transgender identity or at least uh, do something about their transgender identity later in life so they're, they're not so much late onset gender dysphoria, they're late presentation uh, for a whole variety of psychosocial reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so we see those two broad groups, but within that there's, there, there's a broad spectrum in terms of age of presentation. We're seeing, I'm anecdotally hearing about a lot more young kids, the 12 and 13 year olds who seem to have a level of self-awareness that mm-hmm. even I never had when I was, I was that young. I knew I had a problem, you know, when I was three and four and five, but I never knew what it was. But we're seeing, we're hearing about a whole lot of 12 and 13 year old, you know, the, the kids who are presenting or insisting that they be allowed to go to school and in, in this gender and, yep. and, and is it becoming more prevalent? Yes, and, and in fact, you've hit on probably the most controversial area in clinical transgender health at, at this point in time and it is treatment in the 12 to 13 year old age group there is a a group of mental health professionals that would say uh, that suppression of puberty in this age group is a good thing to do particularly if these kids have been intensely gender dysphoric from an early age or otherwise apart from their gender dysphoria psychologically stable um, if they live in a supportive environment and they have parents yeah. supportive of the treatment yeah. and, and there is a real move parents who really need support that's right Yes. It's, it, the parents yep. that I talk to are just beside themselves with, you know, what am I going to do? But they all end up with you. <laughs> well, yes, well, they certainly end up with us or with the children's hospital, and, and there's a very good service there as well, must be, uh, must be noted. But increasingly, I think we will see treatment in this age group. It's very controversial, but uh, the evidence from Amsterdam and studies there, particularly in the 15- to 16-year-old age group where they are treating uh, in that age group, shows that the, these kids do an awful lot better 
and uh, they're psychologically, uh, their functioning is in the normal range, there's resolution of their gender dysphoria, and to date, none of these young people have regretted their transgender treatments or their, their transition. So, again, with that evidence available, there is a move now to bring those treatments forward down to the 12 to 13 year old age group and suppressing puberty at an earlier age. And it's interesting that the new diagnostic criteria in DSM-5 takes cognizance of that in that it is gender incongruence, one of the, the diagnostic criteria, will be uh, distress in young people with the anticipated development of secondary sex characteristics. So yes. it's not disgust or, or unhappiness with the secondary sex characteristics but actually the anticipation of them mm, developing yes. so you really yes. have have touched on a very important topic in yeah. the in the area at the moment. Y- young genetic genetic females who believe that they are males yes. are, are terrified of of um, menstruating and development of breasts and the young boys are just mortified at the thought of growing chest hair and, and, and shoulder muscle development. So. And there's a huge advantage, of course, to treatment in this age group. If you stop the voice breaking and you stop facial hair growth mm-hmm. and you allow them time to explore their, their gender identity, this is suppression of puberty is a totally reversible process. And if over the period of time of adolescence they decide that there is no ambivalence, they're quite sure they want to proceed to cross-gender treatments and cross-sex hormones at at the age of 16, then you save them a lot of trouble. I mean, every patient I see, the bane of their lives is voice and and, uh, and electrolysis and laser. You save a transsexual that uh, and you're doing them a great favour. Oh, yes. You mentioned a moment ago about F2M as well. um, Did you have many um, guys coming through the uh, the clinic as um, female uh, to male, male. transsexuals. Yes. yes. Well, the ratio is, is fairly consistent and has been over the years. It's about six to one. Mm. So we see six male to females versus one female to male. Okay. I've got something I need to move forward with mm. in terms of announcements. We'll just um, be a few, uh, well, we'll be approximately... 59 seconds and um and we'll be talking again to dr finton hart with jane and lauren on transmission time on joy 94.9 different sounds for our same-sex community joy 94.9 transmission time with jane and lauren it's 11 minutes to nine We've got us for about another 10 minutes. Now, we've had a few SMSs and emails. We asked people to call in and, and what have you. And they have. Best we ask Dr. Hart these questions. Okay, um, I have a question here. Dr. Hart, I'm privately insured and have been approved for SRS in the past. Do I have to undertake um, psychometric testing again? No, I, I wouldn't think so. I, I think uh, a brief review of what's been happening would, would be more than mm. sufficient. Mm. Okay. There you go. It's like, and could, can we have your Medicare number? Um, <laughs> There was another one about uh, transgender surgery overseas. Mm. Hi, I wonder if, if the doctor can comment on transgender surgery overseas at KO Hospital in Thailand, where surgery is a lot cheaper. Well, I can't uh, comment on that specific hospital because I'm not familiar with it, but I, I can certainly jo- comment in general on, on, ho- on surgery in Thailand, and, and certainly my experience is the surgery there is very good and it's performed by very competent and well-trained surgeons, many of whom train in, in the United Kingdom and the United States and, uh, as I say, are, are extremely competent. So uh, certainly there is a move for people to to have their surgery in, in Thailand for a whole variety of reasons. Uh, I think cost may be, may be one of them. Uh, but mm. clearly there are advantages in having major surgery and on home base if possible. Mm, uh, especially if some things go wrong. 
I've been doing a bit of research on costing overseas and it can cost you as much in Thailand as what it would cost you to have it done here or in the UK or US. Mm. There, there are some very expensive um, surgeons over there. Excellent service, excellent uh, facilities. There are, or You can also get it done very cheaply, but um, some of the comments that I've seen on the internet uh, basically be, be aware of very cheap prices. Um, you basically get what you pay for. I think that's a, that's a fair comment. Mm. Well, if you were telling us about someone that described themselves as going over to uh, shopping for genitals. No, shopping for new genitals. New genitals, right. yes. <laughs> <laughs> and they wanted the Mercedes rather than a... Bargain basement. Yes. Mm. Yes, but I mean, it, right now at Thailand, you could be walking into the middle of a potential civil war. If you, you could were to be, go over um, there. Unless you've got a nice red shirt or a yellow shirt, which at least aligns you with... <laughs> One side or the other. <laughs> yes. No. Um, we might talk about that on, on another show. Now, uh, we mentioned sort of uh, uh, briefly about the DSM-5 and its proposed changes. And it's the only sort of wording changes that they're basically Gender talking about. Gender incongruence yeah, or, or treatment or, changes. Or, or is it sort of going a bit deeper than that? No, there are very major changes. The, the current diagnostic criteria have, have four elements. One is that uh, one embraces the opposite gender. Um, and identifies with the opposite gender. The second is that one rejects one's natal or birth gender and, and finds uh, one's natal anatomy distressing. Uh, the third is that this isn't associated with an intersex condition. And the fourth is that it causes significant distress in important areas of functioning in people's lives. Now, what will happen, uh, or at least the proposed changes in DSM-5, are that they will disappear the A and B criteria will merge into six indicators, two of which are required for the diagnosis, and the um, the intersex uh, condition will disappear, uh, as will the, the distress criterion. Mm. So they're very significant changes, and I think we'll see more people, it will be easier for people to, if you like, get a diagnosis of gender incongruence than it is to get a current diagnosis of gender identity mm. disorder. And I think the implications of that will be that it will be easier to, uh, to access treatment. Okay. So we're in sort of, um, sort of continue along the line of treatment, and I think you know, following on from one of the questions earlier, the, it it appears as though you've got to go through a bit of a um, I say process in quotation marks. What's the requirements for uh, for starting hormones? Well, the requirements at the moment under the international standards of care is that that, that you have undergone a psychological slash psychiatric assessment and that you have a fared income, gender dysphoria and gender identity disorder under the current criteria mm. that will become more, more liberal yeah. under the DSM-5 and that you... The, the eligibility criteria are that you've been, been living uh, full-time uh, in the chosen role for three months or you've undergone a psychiatric assessment for three months and that you're likely to take uh, hormones in a responsible fashion. There's no medical contraindications and there's no psychiatric contraindications. So they're basically the requirements. Mm. So you can't just sort of um, front up to, uh, to, to your local GMP and say, um, uh, put your hand up and say, um, I'd like to start hormones, please. Well, if your GP is confident in doing that assessment, then it may well be possible. Uh, mm. They may decide, however, that they want uh, some sort of psychiatric or psychological evaluation beforehand. Right. Mm. Uh, and so I think under the standards of care, that would be recommended. If someone wants to plan their transition, and I imagine you don't come across this very often, but someone actually wants to make a start before they 
transition and start living so so they can they're working on their facial hair and they want to start hormones while still presenting in in whatever their gender might be would you consider that if someone says look absolutely I tend to yes. change in three months but it's yeah. very hard for me because i have really thick facial hair or something like that the hormones will help that help decrease it and that will give me a, a better a better shot at just jumping in you know tomorrow absolutely and that's the the eligibility the the living three full time for three months or being in a a psychotherapeutic relationship with a therapist for three months and that's the situation where the therapist will say well yes that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do lauren of course we'll start the hormones and then it seems appropriate you you to transition further down the track okay so it is flexible oh absolutely we've had more sms's and nina we're really going to have to get your medicare number um when in when insured what's what would be the estimated out-of-pocket expenses i guess she's asking for someone wanting to go through surgery mm. here in, in Melbourne? Well, let's assume so. Yeah, I'll the, assume the, so, because there is no Medicare rebates if you <laughs> or, or your insurance won't cover you overseas anyway. Oh, OK. No. The, the out-of-pockets in, in Melbourne for somebody paying uh, the full price would be around $10,000. That's if they already have private health insurance? They yes. have to have private health insurance because oh, the surgery is carried out in a private hospital in Melbourne at, oh, okay. at this point in time. Unless yeah. you've got a, lo- um, a bag load of money. <laughs> <laughs> Which masters don't tend to but have. out of pocket typically would be ten grand. grand yes, nine to ten thousand at the moment. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now, thank you, Nina. We cover the requirement for hormones. Once you're on hormones, if if you want to go down the the surgery route, is the basic test just living full time for um for a period of time? Well, the requirement at the moment is living full time for a period of twelve months. But I think the new standards of care next year will see that change, and we'll be looking at a, a qualitative rather than a quantitative real life experience. Mm. Sometimes I explain to people that you know a girl who's living in. Uh, a country area in in Victoria who perhaps lives on a farm goes into town once a fortnight for provisions that's her only interaction with people not for a moment that I invalidate that as an existence yeah. but clearly their, her interaction that she is living full time 24-7 but the challenges she faces as a trans woman is very different to a corporate lawyer in the city who's appearing in court on a daily basis his wife says you ha- cannot see the kids at the weekend unless you're in boy mode on a Saturday yes. now she technically is not living 24-7 but obviously the challenges she faces are very different and the quality of those two really life experiences are very different so I think that the new standards will take cognizance of that and uh, it will be more a qualitative assessment rather than a quantitative one I think it's a very sensible approach I guess we mm. just about need to get out of here Jane have you got something one last question well there's a whole lot of questions I've asked but the last one basically is there any follow up sort of um, post uh, surgery uh, with your clients or do they just wander off into the woodwork well they do wander off into the woodwork sadly and we'd love to follow them up but they don't want to be followed up by us <laughs> they, they, that's right they want to disappear into well that's right and this is our difficulty in terms of research what I'm trying to do at Monash is to establish a research online where we will ask patients to go online a year down the track and please tell us how you're doing and there will be a questionnaire there for people to fill in so that we will hopefully get some follow up of, of how people are doing because that would be we really need that information Absolutely. when planning health care mm-hmm. for the whole community and yeah and it's always good to say yes the the post-surgery experiences we have 100 percent happy people out there who have moved on 
Anyway, we will have, for the non-trans interested people, there will be 100% happy people as we get out of here and make way for the grumpy old poofs mm-hmm. who may not necessarily be the happiest people in the world, but we really need to thank you, Fintan, again for coming into Transmission Time and talking through and answering the questions and, as always, be, being so open and frank with your advice and, and not charging us for it, which is always a good thing. <laughs> thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. We need to get out of here. We'll be back next Tuesday from 8 till 9 with more of life from a transgender perspective. Then you'll listen to Joy 94.9. This has been another Joy 94.9 podcast. Joy 94.9 is a gay and lesbian volunteer-based community radio station committed to providing a voice for the diverse GLBTI communities. You can support our work by becoming a member or making a donation. For details, go to joy.org.au. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.